This is the DLR Cast, the essential podcast for fans of Diamond David Lee Roth. All right, folks, once again, you are listening ostensibly, almost possibly live to the DLR Cast. As always, I'm Steve, along with my good friend, the Diamond Divine and Debonair Darren Palchowitz. What's happening, Darren? Indeedio, Steve. <laughs> and for no, those of you who are tuning in, you should know that reference. Yes. <laughs> or is that indeed yeah. I do or indeedio? Indeed I oh shit. See now I'm already screwing up the reference. So well, I I think the key is thank you for listening. And it's it's always great to be on board with uh the greatest podcast listenership on the planet, right? I think Ex- we won the award for that. Exactly. I believe this is your only, if not definitely homemade and artisanal, all natural David Lee Roth podcast. As we always say, we're fans, but we're not fanboys, bringing you the best in occasional truths, obscure facts, and a whole hell of a lot of projection. Nothing but yeah. <laughs> Nothing but yeah. I, I, you know, I never get tired of David Lee Roth related content. And that leads me to just dig and dig online. And lately, I've been on a roll the last week finding all these rare European lipstick TV performances as of late. (laughs) Have they been popping up in your YouTube recommendations lately? No, surprisingly not, because I, I, God, I, I do get the occasion. I, I haven't, I'm trying to think of the David Lee Ross stuff I get. I mean, I get a lot of Van Halen stuff recommend, you know, that pops up, but then again, I haven't necessarily looked for obscure European lip sync. Um, uh, although I did see something pop on, on, uh, Van Halen from like 1980 or 81 lip sync performance on Facebook this week. I can't remember what it was, but I remember that popped up and that, that was unearthed or apparently recent or recently unearthed and uploaded. Yeah. There was one from, Italian TV, like three, four months ago, they made it around. They're like playing in front of a dinosaur in the middle of a park or a field. Yes. Yes. And then (laughs) a week or so ago, them doing Unchained on French TV. That was it. Yes. That was just. And Dave has the guitar pretty much on the the whole song, which is a bit of a head scratcher right there. (laughs) And. Uh, what was the one? There was another Italian TV one that looked like they were playing standing room in a club. That one just came up for me. And then there was another one today. I think YouTube's following the algorithm to know what I want. But like, where were these things all these years? Yeah, it. I mean, that's the whole thing. I mean, I'm one, I some of those were. Re- I mean, the, the two lip sync ones you mentioned from Europe. Those are two relatively re- recent ones from this year. Yeah, I know that Unchained one. Uh, that's the one I'm thinking of. Just popped up in my on Facebook. I saw a friend share it. I think that was that's relatively new as far as being found on at least whoever put it up there. And you just, you know, they did a lot of that stuff. And and especially when they were first conquering Europe, because it's easy to forget sometimes. I can't recall with the Hagar years, but um, or even Sharon, but. There was a whole lot of the rest of the world that they should have saw more of and didn't, unlike a lot of their contemporaries that toured the rest of Europe and Japan fairly regularly. I mean, in the beginning, they certainly got out there, those first two or three records. But, I mean, I think, I I don't know if, I I don't think they played as much of Europe and UK as, again, like a lot of their peers, or as much as they probably could have or should have for various reasons. Yeah, the vibe that I'm getting more and more over time is that Van Halen was huge in U.S., Canada, Japan, 
maybe Australia. I'm not getting the vibe that Van Halen was a superstar act in most of the world. Is that what you've been finding out over time? I mean, I just think they may not have spent as much time over on the continent, so to speak. I mean, they did do... I mean, didn't they do one of the big Monsters of Rock festivals with Sammy? Um, They... You know, they did some big festivals, I think, with Dave and with Sammy. But I don't, with the exception of the early years, did I, they ever do the bus tour hitting? I mean, obviously, they were in those markets when those videos were done in the late 70s, early, you know, 1980 or so. But post fair warning, I don't know how often they got uh, they got across the pond, you know, outside of um, outside of like you mentioned, Japan. We know Australia, Japan. They they went to several times. But yeah. as far as the rest of Europe, I I'd be hard. I'd love for somebody to find out. Obviously, we can do some digging. I'm sure there's a there's a big tour listing out there. But I just recall it, and I can remember reading a whole lot of Kerrang and a lot of other magazines, and they played the UK, and they did some festivals. But I just don't think they were out there as often as as uh, the rest of the, outside of the US as often as maybe they should have. Which is why maybe I suppose it's somewhat anecdotal, but I never got the vibe that they were huge superstars. Like say Kiss, right? Yeah. In Europe, I should say. Yeah, Kiss. I remember on the on the Elder tour, Kiss only did a European run and like two U.S. shows, and it kind of bombed there. And then the next album, I believe, was only big in Australia. And so Kiss has always had this stronghold on Australia and South America. The, yeah, the last makeup show was in South America in front of like two hundred thousand people. Yes. Right. And that was like, I guess, technically kind of, well, that was lick it up, uh, lick it up. That was before lick it up, but creatures of the night. Yeah. Which, yeah. So, uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, they, they were bigger in places when they weren't big in other places for a long time kiss. Whereas, I mean, yeah. Van Halen, had such a long media meteoric, just continued huge. They were a huge attraction from 78 to 84. And then later, of course, was Sammy. So, it stands to reason that they could have and should have been that big and at, and as huge in other parts of the world. And I just think maybe that was just because they didn't get out there as much. You got to tour those places regularly, too. Yeah, this all makes me think. You remember about 15 or so years ago when bands, if they were going to be in Chicago, they had to do a day trotter session? Do you yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like, oh, I'm in Kansas City. I got to do this internet radio session. You know, these localized attempts at BBC and John Peel sessions they'd have in smaller cities. It makes me wonder if all of our favorite bands in the late 70s, early 80s cut all these videos in Italy and France and all that, that it was kind of like instead of just doing magazine interviews and stop bys, they had to film these things for TV because it's like, you're here. This is your media day. 12 o'clock, go to that TV station, lip sync your album. One o'clock. Well, yeah. And, and, and I totally, I mean, well, you got top of the pops and other things like that. So, I mean, there's a long history of that, uh, of doing those lip sync and doing those appearances. I know Sweden had one at some show that was similar to that. I mean, um, and this is in Germany. Yeah. Yeah. And this is, I would say, probably predates the mtv era so yeah yeah. so that also gives hope that we're as van halen and dave diehard is going to keep seeing more content that we may not have known about whether or not it's official or for the label well i'm still holding out hope that there is 
a pro shot Edom and Smile tour. Well, we know there's a pro shot Edom and Smile we know one. show out there. We know sort it exists. Of. Just never seen the light of day. I mean, and same with Skyscraper. I know there's that J- Japanese Skyscraper yeah. uh, footage or something out there. But if ever there were two shows for Dave that should have, I mean, he would have cleaned up on the music in a music DVD with some backstage. I mean, you could totally see it with some backstage footage. And you know how so many concert concert videos back then would start with like that, that ultra fast um, uh, concentrated time, time-lapse shot, right. Of the stage being built from like the empty arena and it, right. And you see the forklift, everything's going right in a span of 90 seconds, the entire, and then the lights go down. I mean, you could totally have seen that with the Edom and smile lighting rig going up and amps and everything going in there. I mean, that lighting ring was just massive at the time. I think it set a world record, but God, what a lost opportunity. I lament it many times on this podcast. Yeah. I, I, they had to have been filming simple simple as that and also in that era you not only had the vhs market but you had that short-lived window of laser disc live releases and yeah. if danger danger had a laser disc and tnt had a laser disc right right and uh that hanoi rocks band offshoot uh demolition 23 if they had a laser disc <laughs> laser disc or home video in the works yeah. Yeah. Oh man, we should, uh, here, here's hoping, right? Here's hoping. So here's hoping. So yeah, the, uh, this, this episode's got an interview with two guys who know as much or more about Van Halen than we do. Yeah. And hold on one second. Cause this is yet another fantastic interview. I'm not going to totally blow smoke here, but, uh, it's Brad Talinsky and Chris Gill authors of the awesome, Cool, just published book, Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. I don't mean to step on your thunder there, but I loved listening to this. And man, you've been on a roll. We've had some, uh, let's just pat ourselves on the back here, particularly you. We've Listen, if you're just tuning in, go back to the last three or four episodes, because we've had some amazing interviews. Yeah, you're too kind. The bottom line, uh, that's sort of a, scr- a skyscraper reference, sort of, you know, the bottom yeah. line. <laughs> Got to have it. Got to have it. That's well, the you know, ultimately, you and I are just two fools a minute. So come on. <laughs> oh, I see what you did here. Uh, th- this is one of those things where there's been like three or four Eddie Van Halen centric books on the market in the last year. Uh, two of those other authors were speaking about getting onto the show. So when I saw, OK, a book about Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, great. Wonderful. OK, conversation with Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, OK. And then I looked into the authors of it and went, these are two top tier guitar journalists in Guitar World magazine, guys. Yeah. Among other credits with Brad Talinsky and Chris Gill. And it's the kind of thing where at first you're like, yeah, these are published interviews. I'm sure I read these. And then when you read them on the pages of the book, you kind of go like, no, I did it. Because let's say you picked up the guitar magazine and it's like a, what, six, seven, eight page spread on Eddie Van Halen. You put the pictures in there and you realize wow, this only represents like 10 minutes of conversation. And between Brad and Chris, they they have spent over 50 hours in the presence of Eddie with interviews. So undoubtedly, there was stuff that was initially off the record, stuff that they didn't want out there. So this book is a compilation of moments from those interviews, 
interviews with people from Van Halen's inner circle, a lot of them after Ed had passed, like we get a Michael Anthony interview. How many interviews does he do? Not many. No. There's a Noel Monk uh, piece in there. There, There's uh, Ray Daniels. I don't think I've ever seen a Ray Daniels interview before. Have you? I'm, I don't, I never have. Yeah. So it isn't just covering uh 1978 to 1984 <laughs> it's not just covering 5150 this is an all-encompassing eddie van halen book and as the book alludes to it has some interview stuff with eddie at his low points it has him you're reading it and going he's not fully there um and that's a tragic part of it but even in that period of his life he seems to remember everything and my my takeaway, and you'll you'll tell me if you agree with this, because I never met Eddie Van Halen. Unfortunately, I never will get to. He's always been a mystery. But I come away from reading this as going, he's what you see is what you get, which is kind of the opposite with Dave and his. Oh, life. complete opposite. Yeah, you never really get the. I mean, you with Dave, you get the idea that that's like. That is him, right? I mean, the persona in a huge way is him. And we've and we've heard that and read that over the years from so many interviews. But there's also another side that so many people don't see, and that is this guy is incredibly whip smart. A a better and and people know that now. I mean, the last like 10 or 15 years of interviews, it's like uh, people know just how well read Dave is. But I don't think people know. It's rare when people you know what a astute musician he is, and and um you know and you know, he has put it out there. The guy's got so many varied interests and you got to be really smart to to do that. And whether it's animation or karate or whatever, but with yeah. Eddie, I mean, yeah, you, what you saw was what you got. And this was a guy that was, no one's been more dedicated to his craft. It was a singular world for him with this thing. And exactly. That's a perfect uh, uh, analogy for what you see is what you get really incredibly intelligent, straight up on the surface and it was all driven by an, an unquenchable thirst and love for music. You also get the vibe that however he feels in that exact moment, he feels strongly to no end about that. And you, as you read the book, you kind of see his feelings about certain individuals and certain things over time change. And without spoiling anything, of course, some of the interviews are anti-Dave and then towards sure. the end he's very pro-Dave uh, or at least he realizes what Dave brought to the table over the years which is an interesting evolution Now, not all of his bandmates does he say nice things about you know not to throw shade at Ed but it seems like he and Michael Anthony never made up uh, within yeah. Ed's lifetime and that's that's a puzzlement and I haven't I have I've got the book on order actually so forgive me for but that's the mystery to me is that why the vitriol over the years to to Mike. It wasn't like Mike demanded songwriting credits. It wasn't like yeah. Mike demanded a 20-minute spotlight solo. Yeah. I mean, and some of it, listen, we're huge Eddie fans, but he was a human being. I mean, you got to, I don't know, were you just shocked and surprised when there was that whole thing a few years back when Eddie said just out of the clear blue sky in some interview that, you know, he had a videotape him playing the bass parts for Mike? Yeah, th that one didn't take me back uh, as badly as when a journalist, I can't remember what year this was, but it, it was in the 2000s, 
when somebody was complimenting Michael Anthony's vocal contributions to Van Halen and how he had an unbelievable range and Eddie Van Halen knocking that as being comparable, Michael's vocals being comparable to a piccolo trumpet where <laughs> it's unbelievable range, but it's not the tone you want to hear. And you're like, what? I just, yeah, I just never understood where that came from. Right. I mean, if, the nicest guy, most straight up down to earth guy in rock and roll, probably talk about what you talk about what you see is what you get. And by the way, an amazingly competent bass player. The funny thing is he, I always, I was thinking about this recently and we talked about it. And I think, cause I had a song come up in a playlist and we had talked about this before that. I think the best bass guitar sound Van Halen ever got was with Wolfie from a style standpoint, also, but from a production standpoint, a lot of times that rhythm section, it just, and that does not knock Mike's playing at all. I mm -hmm. just think just maybe parts, a lot of it's just recording techniques and different amps, Wolfie plays, whatever it might be. But I mean, I listened to a couple of those chicken foot records and Mike is amazing on it, man. You know what I mean? It's just, he's to, so to say that he's a great musician. I mean, the guy has got chops and he can play. And of course he's got a voice that's second to none. So again, I just never really understood where that, where that whole thing came from. But let me, let me jump on this for a minute because I'm thrilled about this book because over the years, my always, my favorite interviews, and that's with most artists in general is the guitar world and the guitar magazines like that when they're talking about their craft. I mean, I know fuck all about amps and stomp pedals or whatever. And I play a little guitar myself, you know, I mean, when they get knee deep in the weeds about, you know, the gear and stuff, I don't know what they're talking about 99% of the time. But when they're talking about the creative process and going in the studio and how these songs came together and they're yeah. really getting in depth about the music and the songwriting or even even how they piece together solos of different things, I eat that shit up. And so many of those Guitar World articles, I mean, especially towards the end there. I think the only interviews that he did for a different kind of truth, Hex, when they re after, when they got reunited with Dave, was with Guitar World. I remember a Golf Digest article. Well, there was that, yeah. But, I mean, as far as regular press, you can count on one hand the number yeah. of interviews that the, he did from 2007 when they reformed to, yeah. to his death. There was a CNN piece or clip. I don't know how long that interview was. But as far as full-length interviews, you know, he didn't set, sit down, and neither did Dave. And we've talked about this in the past, too. There was a virtual yeah. press blackout, and it was probably for a good reason. And it did help kind of the mystery of it all, I think. It was an interesting marketing angle, publicity angle. But, you know, he did. He, Eddie never did do that, uh, you know, that 10-page Rolling Stone interview. When I mean, I'm sure they got tons of requests because he had been quiet for a number of years before 2007 and was battling demons and everything. But so the only interviews he did that I recall as far as talking about the music were with Guitar World. Maybe guitar play, I'm not sure, but it's, but and I'm pretty sure Brad, if I remember correctly, Brad did a couple of those interviews because I yes. know he did the bulk of them, and they're fantastic, man. I got more out of found out who and how Eddie creates than uh, you know it's been years. And when you go back, I remember I think Guitar World had a special edition after Eddie's death where they had a lot of these interviews. I was like, oh my god, I forgot this interview from 19, when he did Press for 1984. I mean, it, or a Sammy record and. And so I'm thrilled about this book because I knew they were going to do a great job. And again, it's so in-depth and they're talking about the music and I just love that shit. Yeah, there, there's one thing that I talk about with Brad and Chris. And this, I, you can't call it a spoiler because it's an old interview per se, but my favorite thing, which 
I don't remember hearing before is that when Eddie was building 5150 at that time in LA, they didn't really like the idea of home studios and things of that nature among the city builders. So they basically gave them like a half finished blueprint or what the thing was going to look like. And they told the city that it was a racquetball court. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, that they got how they got through the building codes and stuff like that. Yes. Yeah. So we went into depth about that. And in general, I think it's it's kind of interesting in a way that you figure out quickly that Chris and Brad are not huge diehard day fans. And the more people that I interact with who listen to this podcast or identifies Van Halen diehards. You the more you realize that a lot of people didn't care if it was Dave or Sammy singing, they were there for Eddie. And, oh, absolutely. And, and that's okay. Yeah. It, in other words, it's not like if we make references to your filthy little mouth. If if you said no big ting to Chris or Brett, <laughs> I don't think that that's gonna register per se. So it's very interesting to me here, uh, for me to hear like Honestly, they're not diehards. They're not pretending to be diehards. They love the Eat em and Smile record, but they didn't follow for years and years and years, even though they are Steve Vai friendly. They have interviewed Steve Vai. They've worked with Steve Vai on stuff. Well, that's kind of refreshing. I've known I've known real guitar freaks who were like and guitar fans and and really good guitar players. And that their fandom with Dave stopped at Skyscraper. Because yeah. it was mainly Steve Vai, Brahman Falls. Like, okay, let's see what Dave's going to do. Whoa, we hooked up with Steve Vai. They lost the plot like so many other people did. And yeah. that's no knock on them. I mean, we were talking the last episode, the revolving cast of characters that yeah. that Dave had in the band. And when it went directly, just a sh direct, I'm the only guy in front of the camera, solo project with Dave, right? Like an Alice Cooper or something where, you know, yes, yes. Eat, him and, eat him and smile. You, all the band was in the photos. He talked about the guys in the band regularly. I mean, he really put forth that this is a band pr project idea and, and talked about, you know, the collaborative nature of it and everything. And those guys did tons of interviews around that. After that, I mean, did, uh, um, oh, geez. Well, I mean, who knows what could happen with Jason Becker? That's just so sad. I mean, he could have been maybe that next Steve Vai guy and been there right with Dave in interviews and stuff like that. But did was there ever an interview with um, what's his name who played on Your Filthy Little Mouth? <laughs> um, um, with Terry Kilgore? Yeah, yeah. I remember looking. I remember looking for interviews. Who is this guy? He went goes way back with Dave from the Pasadena Dave, Pasadena days. No interviews. Yeah. Nothing there at all and we've seen a lot of jason becker interviews over the years that even oh, yeah. incapacitated he was able to do q and a's over email with metal sludge and the family right. well he's also been very prolific he's done a lot of records yeah. so yeah but you raise a really good point there that the band interviews did not continue on skyscraper as far as i know no. and I never thought about that before. That's a really good point. The Alice Cooper comparison where Alice Cooper was the name of the band. That was right. the band until 78 or 79. But when those guys were kind of faceless too. I mean, even back then it was, it was the Alice Cooper band, but I mean, maybe there were interviews with Dennis Dunaway back then, probably, but 
and Alice talked about, but he was the main, sure, Dave was the main face in the band, but even from an onstage standpoint, the spotlight that he gave to Vi and Sheehan yeah. on that first tour, and to, and Vi also, and to a lesser degree, uh, Matt Bisnett on Skyscraper, but that all pretty much went away after that. Obviously, those guys weren't in the band, but it was just a different vibe. It was really, this is all Dave all the time. This is a true, total, complete solo project, solo career. Yeah, the 10 minutes uh, or so a night that Billy Sheen and Steve, I would chase each other on stage without Dave on stage. I don't think that Dave was leaving the stage and letting the guitar solo so much on future tours. I mean, I don't recall, and I don't, you know, I, I... Geez, I don't recall. I mean, certainly when he opened, when he did the co-headlining tour with with uh, Sammy Hagar and other, you know, when I saw other tour dates through the, geez, early 2000s, yeah. I mean, it was hit, hit Van Halen hit, Van Halen hit after hit, and then just yeah. a gigolo. I mean, there was no solo spots or anything, to which I wasn't disappointed that there weren't solo spots, but those guys were... I knew Ray Luzier was, but I had to do a double take. I'm like, is that Bart Walsh? Who is that? Who's on base? I mean, they really were, it, they were hired hands, man. You know, I mean, it, yeah. it, it, it was what it was. By the way, my, my nice gloves with Sammy Hagar, they're, they're coming off in the very near future. That's, that's just a warning right no, here. No, no, no. I love the output, but man, these PR people are. Whew. No, we're not burning any bridges, my friend. We'll, but let's take that offline. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, Brad and Chris were such a pleasure to speak with. It's a, it's a change of pace from the previous episode where we spoke with Rocket and Kane and got that that side of Dave that we haven't. Well, yeah, and, and those guys played with Dave, and these guys wrote a book about Eddie Van Halen. So, who, of which Dave is, uh, I'm spacing on the word in. I can't even pronounce. I'm like freaking, um, uh, yeah, you know what I mean? Uh, permanently linked. Attractively linked. Related. But but our next interview is going to get more back in the cane and rocket uh, di- direction of things with a former sideman of Dave. So, you know, stick with us with getting a little off format for this episode. Hey, it's Dave related, man. It's cool. I learned some things about Dave listening to this interview and it was fun and it was cool. And highly, I, I haven't, I, I will, I will highly recommend the book because I know a lot of the content in it without having the book is without having got the book yet. It is on order. Yeah. And as said earlier up top, a couple of other books related to Eddie and Van Halen, on the release schedule as well, that uh, Fire in the Canyon one where they had unprecedented photo access at 5150. There's that one. There's uh, I, is that one by Michael Christopher or Michael Christopher do the other one? I think he did the other one. But the bottom line is it's great to see people being able to dig in and open up their archives for Van Halen. I heard a rumor that there was going to be, is it Mark Weiss that had a, a Van Halen photo book coming out? I think so. Yeah, I believe that's another it one. It hasn't already come out if we missed it, have we? I I don't I would have caught that somewhere. It was either him or Ross Halfin, one of the big three. Does anyone ever call them the big three, by the way? The the Halfins, Lazauer and uh Mark Weiss. I have upstairs a big Van Halen book of up through eighty four. And I think is that Lazauer? Do you know which one I'm talking about? Yes, I do. It's a big heart, it's a coffee table book, and it is really cool. Yeah. So 
again, it's it's great to see that even if things happened 30 plus years ago, there's still new perspectives on these things. And to great professionals like Brad and Chris. Oh, Lord, yes. And you just kind of made me think of something that we started talking about before this interview a little bit. But for God's sakes, Dave just announced he's thrown in the shoes or the towel, or the shirts, whatever the hell he's thrown in with <laughs> retirement. Somebody's got to be working on a Dave book. Another, another authorized biography or something. Wasn't there the Tao of Dave several years ago? I mean. Yeah. Frank Meyer was uh, the one who started that project. I, I think you have to do that old radio cliche. Friend of the show. Frank Friend of the show. Yes. First yes. time, long time. <laughs> First time, long time. <laughs> yeah. Frank started that book. And according to him, might have said this in our interview, they took pitches. I think William Morris is pitching it. And then the Van Halen reunion happened and the book didn't happen. Yeah. But there should be a book on David Lee Roth because Listen, let's face it, all these books are about Mr. Eddie. Yeah. And as well, they should be. But Dave, there should be some good book fodder in the future, hopefully as well. Hell, I'd read a book called David Lee Roth, the EMT years. The New York City <laughs> journals. I even got a subtitle. Dude, I can go with this. That no one knows what the hell, right? Come on. Yeah, there's only like the two or three stories where he talks about like saving a guy after Ozfest. But then that all bleeds into the radio Howard Stern years, which bleeds into the bluegrass strumming with the devil. And years. and overall, as we call that era, the David Lee Roth lost years, right? Roughly from about 94, 93 to 2000. Well, six, really. I mean, not yeah. a lot of recorded output. One really amazing record in the DL, in DLR band. Um, and somewhere in the midst of all that, I'm not, I can't go there fully, but you, somewhere in the midst of all that, the bizarre and twisted and utterly I don't even know what to call it, but I still love watching it. No holds barbecued. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. We, we might have uh, the person responsible for that entire video on this podcast. Oh, it's been Lord. talked about. I'd love to hear about that. I, I, I also want to get to the bottom of the story about Ashley Abernathy. Ashley Do you know Abernathy. what I'm talking about? It's ringing a bell. It's She was um, a kid who had cancer who I believe is still with us and healthy and cancer-free 25 plus years later. But this Queens, New York charity had something to do with the fact of uh, we get people to sing songs to help heal oh. sick. And that's still on Spotify. You could find his. Yes. Song. I listened to it a couple months ago. Yeah. How cool was that? Yeah. I, I want to find out how did that happen? And how did I never hear about it at the time? Exactly. So the lost years, he may have been recording this whole time because some of the songs that wound up on the Diamond Dave album were the soundtrack to No Holds Barbecue. Mm -hmm. yeah. And some of the No Holds Barbecue recordings never wound up on anything whatsoever. No, I mean, that's the thing. We should do an episode and maybe get someone on who could talk about it too. Because he's done a lot of covers. I mean, Baker Street. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Don't bring me down by ELO in No Holds Barbecue. I mean, there's some cool stuff out there. I mean, what else is out there? Um, I think it's a second ELO song that he did for that same compilation. That same was it? Don't bring me down. Do my I, I think right, it was don't it bring me down and 
Oh, putting me on the spot here. Oh. I'm spacing. Now I have Don't Bring Me Down in my head. I think it was something from that same that same album too. It's a song that sounds like Evil Woman that's not Evil Woman cuz let's face it after you've listened to ELO for a while all the songs kind of blend together. No. I'm a big fan. Uh me too. I saw but that in Madison Square Garden. I I, I just had a vision in my head that if Dave was to uh, what do you think and he did it all himself so maybe this pitch meeting never happened. But can yeah. you imagine the pitch meeting for Noel's barbecue? Wow! All right, everybody, listen, check this out. I got midgets. I got triplets. Oh, machine guns, camouflage, a sword. A, you know. <laughs> I vividly remember uh, being home from high school that day, and the UPS truck pulling up in front of my parents' house, and the doorbell ring, and the UPS truck guy hands me an envelope. He's like, "Here." Thanks. And drives away. I'm like, okay. And I open it up. It was from Mitch Schneider's PR firm. And it was two uh, hard shell black VHS tapes. It just said David Lee Roth's No Hold BBQ on it. And it came with a video. uh, It came with a cover letter on bright colored paper because all of Mitch Schneider's PR firm things came on like lime green, startling pink because it was brilliant. It's like, um, yeah, it's going to stand out from the whole pile. And it said it had some kind of a thing. Do you remember the old David Lee Roth thing in that era? Like, if you like it, tell a friend. If you don't like it, tell an enemy. Right. It right. had one of those things where it's like, we don't even know what this is. What was that? Deal. <laughs> well, that's yeah. a crazy th- That's another thing I'd like to learn. I mean, it was never released commercially, but yet perhaps it was going to because there was a publicist on it who sent out screeners. And a press release on it. So, I mean, again, part of the mystery lost years. I I sent one of my two copies to Metal Sludge and they never thanked me for it nor reviewed it. So uh, throwing shade to Metal Sludge 22, 23 years for for sending that one to an Indiana post office box. But uh, (laughs) I think that there's a lot to unpack with that release as well. I agree. All right. Well, you'll hear it here eventually, some one way or another. So let's get to the interview. As always, thanks for downloading and streaming. We got more great stuff coming up here at the DLR cast. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Steve. All right. The compliments and then the name drops shall begin. So, <laughs> so I love your book. It's my favorite book of 2021 so far how far we are into 2021 it's probably going to be the best book of the year so congratulations <laughs> not an easy book to write for, to say the very least right here but yeah oh yeah i'll i'll start with um the dumbest question but i don't think anyone has ever answered this before did eddie van halen like to be called ed eddie or edward because i i don't know his preference um Generally, when you were sitting with him and talking with him, I found was Ed, was, but um, also Edward. I mean, I think he didn't, he liked Eddie the least out of all three, but um, Edward was really, I think, what he preferred to go by. But I think just for brevity, he just like, you know, hey, Ed, you know, whatever. That was cool. Yeah, I know. He sort of expressed that to me at one point that he didn't, he wasn't in love with Eddie. <laughs> really? 
any you like that or Edward? <laughs> any idea where that came from? Did that come from maybe being an immigrant in a new country and they tried to Americanize him? You know, I think it was, think just, it was a, just dudes hanging out, you know? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it was so cow, man. Late 70s, you know, dude, Eddie, whoa, <laughs> shred, man, you know? But now I think I also there was a whole thing, you know, and David Lee Roth played a big role in this. And it was just to make the guys seem younger than they actually were at the time. Oh. So I think that Eddie just kind of stuck in the beginning, you know, because it just it sounded young. You know, it sounded kind of, you know, almost teenage or whatever. So, hey, Eddie, you know, it was yeah. it was sort of interesting because when we were talking about the uh, the title of the book, um, you know, Eruption Conversations with Eddie Van Halen. I think Chris and I both suggested that it be Edward Van Halen, but you know, the publishers felt like he was more known by, by Eddie than Edward or Ed. So that's, that's, so that stuck. <laughs> search engines, it's search engine stuff, man. Cause people are going to be typing in Eddie Van Halen. So yeah. they want, they want, want to get those hits, maximize the hits there. Yeah, exactly. SEO guides a lot of stuff with publishing these days. I ask all that. I like to find that out because, for example, when I interviewed Tommy Lee last year, I said, by the way, does anyone call you Tom, Thomas, are you Tommy <laughs> to everybody? Because when you think about it, when you have a 55 to 60 year old man still as Tommy, you remember how Debbie Gibson had that period where she didn't want to be Debbie anymore. She wanted to be Deborah. And then she yeah, yeah. So I didn't know if Eddie was like, oh, Eddie, I hate that name. <laughs> I think I think Eddie is like it was convenient for him, too, because it was almost a way to sort of separate his his rock star persona from who he was as well. You know, Fair. Eddie was the guy on stage. You know, Ed was the guy at 5150 Studios. Yeah. I, I mean, the the other end of this whole thing is when I had the pleasure of interviewing David Lee Roth when I was really young, which not a great interview but hey at least i got to do it when i was like 20 21 or something cool. like that he answered the phone is diamond dave i didn't call him diamond <laughs> dave he called himself diamond dave so i was always wondering like is does he call himself dave david d <laughs> that kind of thing who knows my big question is uh buck dharma a blue yeah. oyster cult uh his official name's Don Roser. I actually, I called and left a message at his house once. I'm like, what do I call him? Do I call him Don? Do I call him Buck? You know, so I just, I called him Don and he never called back. So I guess that was a mistake. I should have called him Buck, you know? So who knows? I think David Lee Roth prefers to be addressed as the greatest. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and you your majesty. I, I'm going to all five <laughs> of the Vegas shows myself. Cool. Uh, either of you going to one show. The reason I ask is because Everyone I've spoken to so far who's worked with David Lee Roth is a diehard fan, isn't going to one single show in Vegas. Well, I, I'm not a, uh, this might be controversial. I'm not a big fan of Vegas. I don't know if I would actually go there to see, uh, to, to see Dave, but uh, Chris and I actually had the incredible opportunity to see Van Halen play at Cafe Wa which was like a small club in New York city when, um, yeah. when, when they first uh, reunited. And uh, I think I was sitting about 10 feet away from, from Ed, you know, on the stage. And that was, it was sort of all I needed seeing Ed, Dave, Wolf, Alex, that close up was pretty cool. Tell me yeah, if I was like 
this is I was right in front of Wolfgang. So I was high fiving him like all night. You know, I think I was making him nervous, you know, because it was just like, holy crap. You know, who's this guy coming at me? You know, I've heard uh, the comedian Jim Florentine speak about that show because he recorded it and that wound up in Dave's personal archives. He just donated it to him when management reached out. And tell me if this is true. Besides that show being historic because they were playing such a small, legendary venue, especially if you're a comedy fan, the significant thing about it was Ed could not leave the stage during Dave's banter. (laughs) He was trapped. (laughs) There was no escape. I mean, I was actually surprised how small that that place was because I've been to, you know, I used to go in the day, I used to go to the Starwood, you know, not not when Van Halen was playing. I was a little bit younger, but, um, but, you know, as the the late seventies, early eighties um, happened. I went to the Starwood a lot. I went to the whiskey a lot. Uh, and those clubs are much bigger than the, the cafe. Wall. the cafe Wall is just like going in someone's basement, you know? And so, yeah. but yeah, there was, I think it, there was no escaping, but you know, by that time, those guys were on pretty good terms. Yeah. So uh, I think that, uh, you know, again, those that will read the book, will see this trajectory, this arc from, uh, you know, the whole ins and outs of the relationship between Ed and Dave. And sort of the nice thing was, you know, at the end, those last several years that Ed and Dave were working together, Ed actually came to, I think, appreciate the sort of uh, wackiness of, of David Lee Roth and, and, and didn't feel offended by it. Yeah, really good point there. I was talking about this with our mutual friend, Steve Schultz. Do you know Steve by any chance, Chris? Uh, I don't know, unfortunately. Singer of a great band called Long Wave, another band called Hurricane Bells. Everyone likes okay. him. He's on that. Tom... He's a brilliant guitar player, too. He's on that Tom Bojor list of everyone likes this guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. competent. <laughs> Very short list of likable and competent, per se. <laughs> and Steve and I were talking about this, about how Eddie seemed to, in your interviews, like everybody on the planet except Michael Anthony, <laughs> like he unfortunately gets the brunt because, you know, Ed was going through some tough times, to say the least, during some of the interviews in this book. But it's really cool to see how he came full circle. But my favorite part of this whole book, without spoiling too much, is the 5150 racquetball court anecdote. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Somebody uh, ripped that off in another book and didn't credit me for it. And it's like, I'm coming after them, man. It's like, I, <laughs> I know where you live, so I'm going to get you. But um, yeah, that was like, that was a crazy interview. That was a great interview with Ed that um, just, you know, how he opened up about the whole process and the timeline and everything too. It's just, it's, it's really fascinating. Um, the fact that, you know, the whole genesis of that came from, you know, this just chance meeting with Steve Vai backstage after Alan Holdsworth, you know, after his Alan Holdsworth gig that Eddie participated in, you know, and Vi invites him up to meet Zappa. And then Zappa invites Ed to produce his Dweezil's first solo record, uh, the single that is, you know, and then yeah. him and Don Landy show up at Zappa's studio and go like, why don't we do this? You know? And that was just, that's a, just an amazing timeline. I think that just how that all came together. And of course that's just what Ed needed. I mean, maybe the rest of the band didn't need Ed to have his own studio like that, but Ed really needed that for his creativity. Yes. Uh, you, you spoiled the thing. I, is it a spoiler if this all happened decades ago? I don't know. It's not like squid games where the fourth episode, no, it's different. <laughs> yeah. You can, you can read the details. That's just, that's just, that's the, the cliff notes there. So the details are even more interesting. 
for yeah. sure that there's so much there's so much in our book too that uh that we can give away a few nuggets here and still have plenty left over <laughs> yeah it's pretty mind-blowing when you think about it that the guy who essentially replaced eddie as you know the guitar player for david lee roth is responsible for 5150 yeah it was a very small, a- small world back then. <laughs> For sure. And Steve Vai, who you guys have worked with through the backstory events and interviewing for guitar magazines and whatnot, it's interesting to see how you have been cool with the guy with Eddie, the guy who replaced Eddie in a way, the past, present, and future. You guys are those long-term people who stuck around, not the people who are trying to get the one scoop to get the next thing, to get the next thing, you know, your lifers. So I guess asking Chris first, 30 years ago, did you know, hey, I'm going to still be doing this? Well, that was kind of the game plan, really. Um, you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't like I was going to do a book or anything. That was never the plan. It was just like, I just, you know, I my experience with Van Halen starts in January of 1978, you know, uh, KMT radio rush released, you know, when they, they put out that, that red vinyl and, um, they played, you really got me at 2 AM in the morning. And it's really funny. Cause I found out that that's edit her probably heard that same thing. Cause he talked about hearing himself on the radio at 2 AM and running in and telling his parents, you know, and waking him up. Um, but I just, you know, I had followed them like crazy cause I was a guitar player back then and listened to everybody. But um, I, yeah, my thing was really to just kind of, you know, try and be Ed's mouthpiece with the guitar community. And I was actually at a competing magazine initially, Guitar Player, when I did my first interview with Ed. But when I saw the access that Guitar World had, it's like, OK, I'm coming over there, you know, to get in on some of that stuff and eventually work my way up where I was, you know, the go to guy to go over there and do that. So between Brad and I, you know, it was really quite a quite a relationship we built with Ed and it was trust. And, you know, we never stabbed him in the back. You know, we never there was times where we got kind of juicy, salacious stuff out of him, but um, right. you know, Ed would have second thoughts afterwards and tell us not to print it. And if we didn't have any ethics and if we were just thinking about, you know, one time bang, here you go, you know, that would have shut the door, but he was very open with us at the same time. He did give us stuff that he wouldn't give to other people because of that relationship that we had. So that was, that was a good thing about it. Same question for you, Brad. Did you know that you were going to be a lifer way back when? Yeah, no, it's an interesting question. Um, I think uh, I think when I first picked up the guitar when I was 12 or 13, I had some sense that I was going to be a lifer <laughs> in one <laughs> one sense or another, you know, not with Van Halen, but with the instrument. And I didn't know, you know, it, it, it's interesting that, that this object, this uh, inanimate object, you know, takes you on this journey, you know, that has been going on for 40, 50 some years now. Uh, so, yeah, so, you know, we got to guitar world and, and um, I, I think for me, like as much as interviewing Eddie Van Halen or Eric Clapton or whomever I would talk to the idea of, of like this community of guitar players, right. Of all, all of us, which I'm sort of assuming you're, you 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 might be in or an honorary member. You know, I don't think I, I, it's like you know, it's like the mafia. You can't ever really leave. <laughs> I, I would call myself like the least competent guitar-related journalist in the history, or the best mainstream 
person ever for the guitar world. It's kind of like the best of the worst, the worst of the best. Like I, I <laughs> okay, my... You know, it, it's interesting if you're not so deep down, you know, not in like a total virtuoso or, or have your, your thing philosophically, you can have a nice open mind towards everything. Yeah, for sure. I, I like that you guys in your interviews over the years, and if I have it correct, it's over 50 hours of interviews that this was pared down from, that you can talk the gear stuff. We, we hear about the dragon guitar and how different sounds happened, yet we also hear personal life stuff. We also hear how things were made on the albums. If it were a book of just 50 hours of guitar interviews, that would be a really small audience. And if it were 50 hours of just how the albums are made, also a small audience. So the fact that you were able to get all of that over the case of the 90s, 2000s, and 2010s, wow, that's a lot of work. It's not just, uh, let, let me pause you there for one second, Brad. The average person that doesn't really think about how art is made would go, oh, so they just transcribed a bunch of stuff they already had. And it's not like thinking about how you told the story you resequence things and then you got people to add their commentary because you got a great rare Michael Anthony interview in there as well. Back to you, Brad. <laughs> yeah. And, and Ray Daniels and um, you know, who is a manager yeah. and Gary Sharon, uh, you know, a lot of different people really opened up to us, um, you know, in the book. Uh, I, I had a thought and I, I, I lost it. Where, where were we going on this thing? Well, I, I, I think I'll, I'll speak a little bit here up to that. That thing is that we did go, we did have all this stuff and we did have a lot of guitar intensive stuff. Me particular. I, you oh, know, right, I have right. okay. like Sorry. a marathon <laughs> interview I did with Ed over at the Defender custom shop in Corona, California. And it was actually filmed by the professional Hollywood film crew. And it looks like a flipping Scorsese movie. <laughs> you know, it's just these wonderful tracking shots and everything. And, um, uh, they didn't use any CGI on me, unfortunately, because I kind of look a little bit in my job of the hut phase there. But um, <laughs> I've lost 100 pounds oh. since then. But uh, so I kind of I kind of watch that stuff and I cringe a bit. But um, <laughs> but it's you know, it's the thing is, is that we did want to get to the core of Ed and we did have this material. And that is the thing we did. I'm glad you noticed that we did resequence these things, that we put it off in, into a very logical timeline. You're not just reading a bunch of disparate interviews and yeah. subjects are jumping all over the place. And you're kind of going like, wait, what was this? What was that? You know, and it also helped us a little bit was because sometimes there were some contradictions in what Ed said. Yes. And sometimes you will see that in the book, but not too often. Usually when we put it in a, in a sequence, we were able to kind of go through and especially with time, you know, figure out what's the more accurate answer here. Although I think I did miss one on guitar nerd stuff here, guitar nerd warning. But Ed told me when I did the, the, the deep dive into the 1984 album, that he used the um, the Kramer 5150 guitar. That was his main guitar on that. And it's actually, I'm pretty sure that he actually still was using the Frankenstein, that Frankenstein was retired after 1984 was done. And he used the 5150 guitar on the tour after that. Yeah. I, I, I'm i sorry. What, what I was going to say before is, yeah, you did you do point out a good thing. I think uh, whether it was even in Guitar World or Guitar Aficionado or any of the books that uh, Chris and I have worked on, it's never one thing or another. I mean, music is created by human beings. So it's a combination of, of, of who they are uh, internally combined with the uh, discipline externally. And, and, and you're right. You know, when you get these biographies of musicians, you usually get 
one or the other and and that's just not the right way to to talk about music or a musician you know you have to you have to show how these both these things work together the emotional side with the the technical side and i think that you know that was the challenge for us was to make both of those things interesting to uh the novice and uh, you know the novice musician and the experienced musician um yeah. And, and hopefully we, we accomplished that. We went way out of our way to try to make that stuff clear. Yeah. My, my next huge takeaway from your book, granted, I'd seen some of these interviews and pieces over the years, whether it was being plagiarized by other outlets or yeah. you, know, you pick up your guitar, but you don't like when you're me, you don't really remember where you heard the thing per se. You just know you heard it. And then it's a fact ingrained in you. And Reading this much Ed commentary in one place, it occurred to me he was a very what you see is what you get kind of person. There's no uh, aphorisms per se. Whereas when you're talking to Diamond Dave, you know, you get the like, it doesn't matter if you're Mickey Mouse or Frank Sinatra. Like you get those kinds of, of things. So in turn, he's good at skating around answers. I don't find, unless I'm totally wrong here, I find that Ed said exactly how he felt and maybe it changed in 1991 from 2001, but that's how he felt in very few words. Yeah. I mean, but the part of the idea of the book is to show him at, you know, uh, as uh, you know, his evolution as a, as a person and a musician and like all of us, you know, the, the, the 30 year old is going to be different than the, than the 60 year old, you know, you're going to go through evolution of thinking and and it's it's always sort of amusing to me that you know people think that there is you know one Ed Van Halen uh, you know or that you know there's one Chris Gill you know we we all change over time and and the book was a little bit of a reflection of that we, you do see his growth as a person and like I said you see parts in the book where he cannot stand David Lee Roth. Yes. And then by the end of the book, he's calling him a genius, you know, so you do yeah. see this, this growth and this change. And that's reflected musically too. I mean, that's the thing. And a lot of people just, you know, they, they shrug off the Van Halen three album. And again, not to mention other books, but there's one out there and there's only two pages out of, you know, about 250, 280 pages of this book, only two pages of them are devoted to Van Halen three. Well, that was a very important album in Ed's history. And talking about the growth, Ed really wanted to grow. He wanted to do something mature. He didn't want to do the, the partying and drinking and girls and whatever type of stuff that he had done in his past. He wanted to do something that was more in line with, you know, what he thought like, like Peter Gabriel was doing or something. Yeah. Um, and of course that was rejected and that just knocked him for a loop. And, you know, we go deep into that um, because that's a very important part of, you know, this beginning of this really deep, this dive that you know his life went into uh his life starts to unravel and he kind of goes into this thing and we think we're going to lose the guy and then he pulls out of it um and to understand all of that you have to look at that album you have to look at that time period and understand what was really going on you just can't brush it off in two pages and say like oh this album wasn't really didn't sell well and wasn't really all that great or something when ed you know thought it was his best work i mean yes. that that was the interesting thing about right you know, going, writing the book is almost like you as a consumer of, of Ed's interviews through the years. I mean, Chris and I were sort of in that sort of bubble 
during each section too. You couldn't see quite the full picture. And I think that that's really the function of the book is that, you know, you might be familiar with a few of these things, but then when you step back and you see the pattern and you see the development, the growth, and that there is a, there is a trajectory and a story to, to the whole thing. You make a really good point where you bring up that Van Halen three, Ed thought that that was his best work. I remember what was the name of the show? There was a show on MTV in the late nineties where they would find the biggest fan of that band, quote unquote, biggest fan of a particular band. And then they would like hijack them basically and be like, you're about to meet this band. And I think it was called <laughs> fanatic. Do you remember the show at all? No. I have a vague recollection of it. Yeah. There was a Van Halen three era Van Halen appearance and they basically whisked the person away. I think we all know that it's not as simple as that because there's talent releases and, and things of that nature. Like, wait, why were they filming my bedroom? <laughs> like that, that kind of a thing. We all know now about reality show casting and like that maybe there is an element of surprise per se, but it wasn't as simple as, hey, you, we don't know if you're working or going to school today, but we're going to put you in a limo and fly right. you around. It's like, I don't have a passport, you know, that kind of a thing. Right. <laughs> so there was a Van Halen 3 thing, and they brought him to meet the band. And he was talking about maybe how many can say I. He One of the songs on there, Ed said something along the lines of, if one person likes this song, then I did my job. Mm -hmm. And you could tell this this was a sincere thing, like, I love this album per se, but the way that everybody shut it down over the years, I may have made a snide comment or two. It's unfair because, un like you just said, Brad, the Peter Gabriel comparison, that's the thing that comes up a lot. Like, um, was it the Getty Museum? What was the 2015? Smithsonian? Yes. Smithsonian, yeah. Smithsonian. Yeah. I think he said he calls out like, hey, Wolfie, what was the last album I bought? Yeah. Peter Gabriel. So, yeah. <laughs> Ed didn't want to write songs like Panama. He was told to write a song, as you point out in the book, that sounds like ACDC. And he did. So yeah. it makes you think, was it true? Was he a prog guy that David Lee Roth basically edited into a pop guy as needed? I, I don't think, think it's he... that simple. I, you know, Ed, Ed wrote music and it was just, he presented stuff to the band. And I mean, you know, Ed could, he, he said he got these pop songs that just came to him like, um, can't stop loving you. Um, you know, I'll wait, you know, jump, you know, these are songs that just came to his, came to him. And it's like this, sometimes he said, this isn't stuff I would necessarily listen to. Like he said about, you know, I can't stop loving you. Um, but he just recognized that there's potential in this. So, but I think at heart, he was a progressive guy. I think, um, I mean, the takeaway from Van Halen three was that he, again, through the years, he kept on developing and developing and um, he just wanted to do something different. He wanted to express a different side of himself. And, you know, the debate could be like, as Gary Sharon says in the book that maybe that should have been the second record with him, you know, that they should have taken the audience a little bit more by the hand, but uh, you know, that's where Ed was going. And you'd, you'd go to Ed and you'd say, well, you know, you'd want to talk about something on Van Halen three or, you know, or I mean, Van Halen two or, or uh, you know, uh, women and children first or 1984. And, 
And he would go there, but he was always like a little reluctant. And his common phrase was, you know, that's why God put your eyes on the front of your head, you know, is to see forward, you know, to look forward. So he was, you know, the fans wanted the old stuff, but Ed was always looking into the future. Right. Well, totally unrelated topic here, but Diamond Dave, uh, we've talked about Steve Vai. I'll start with you first, Chris. Do you have a favorite of the Roth solo albums? Oh, it's got to be the first one. I mean, you know, it just, um, it just, I mean, that, that's such a raucous record and it's a, it's a, it's, you know, I, it kind of picks up the Van Halen banner and uh, it just, I don't know. I just, I love it. I just remember that, you know, specifically just, oh my God, Steve Vai is playing with David Lee Roth, you know, cause he did, you know, Vai had done stuff before obviously with Zap and I was aware of that. And um, also with Alcatraz and it was like, yeah, you know, but, um, you know, when he's there with David Lee Roth, it's like, okay, now we can really hear this guy give us the goods, you know, and, and he did. For sure. Brad, same answer for you. Yeah, I'd say so. Um, you know, Skyscraper was actually not as bad of a record as some people think. Oh, I that's a great it was, record. Yeah, I thought it was record. pretty, uh, pretty hooky. I love the songs, you know, but it was, it did sort of push the band in a little bit more of that that pop direction you know there was a little less flash uh than the first solo record so i have to give the first solo record the edge you know because both uh you know sheehan and Vi and all those guys they were sort of at the peak you know given that there has been such a claim in this conversation for Edom and smile does this mean that neither of you have heard the album in spanish sonrisa salvaje i i have it i actually own that <laughs> I, I actually went through a very well, actually, it's not even a phase. I actually, from time to time, I collected alternate language versions of various songs. Like I have the police singing, you know, a bunch of their singles in like French or something like that. Um, so I love that kind of stuff, actually. That's uh, how I learned how to speak Spanish. Yeah, from David Lee Rod. <laughs> from Yankee Rose, right? <laughs> All I really know how to say in Spanish is this. <laughs> the funny thing is, though, of course, what Ed says about the uh, the Japanese live album is like, you know, I made a comment to Ed like, oh, I didn't know that, you know, because there's in between where Dave's talking to the audience in Japanese. And I told, you know, Ed, it's like, oh, I didn't know Dave knew how to speak Japanese. And like, Ed's like, well, yeah, I spoke to this Japanese guy and said, do you understand what he's saying? He's like, no. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, good. He's good at faking it. <laughs> My favorite quick story about all that is. When I saw Dave uh, in 03, when he was after the Sammy tour, when he was doing some headline theater kind of stuff, there was a show here on Long Island at Westbury Music Fair, this infamous kind of venue where maybe your career's not in the best place, but you're getting really well paid and it's in the round and all that. And I see that show and I go, this is the best show I've ever seen. This is great. Uh, six months later, I happened to be in Japan. Roth was playing there. So this would have been early 04. And I see the show and I go, that is the same exact show I've seen, but but it's it's great. And then, you know, six months later, I was in Milwaukee during Summerfest. Oh, Roth is playing. This is the same exact show I've seen, but it's still pretty great. But what's significant about that is he was doing the Spanish stuff in Japan. Wow. Cool. <laughs> that really must have thrown him for a loop. You think he knew exactly. he was in Japan? I'm sorry? Do you think he knew he was in Japan? 
You know what? I honestly don't remember him saying anything in Japanese or about the fact that he was in Japan. So there's a chance. No. I mean, jet lag is not the easiest. No. So uh, I've complimented you guys and your books a ton. There's so many other projects. We talked about backstory events, talked about She Rocks and all that. Let me get what's coming up next. So Chris, what's now? What's next? Vacation. <laughs> <laughs> um, for me, um, you know, Brad and I have spoken about a couple book projects. So we've got something we can't really say what's going to happen because uh, there's very many wheels that need to be put into motion, very many gears that need to interlock mm-hmm. and everything. But when the time is there, we will all let you know. Uh, in the meantime, I'm just playing a lot of guitar so and figuring out how to I'm actually in an Uli John Roth phase right now. So I'm listening to all those early Scorpions albums and I'm trying to figure out Sales of Sharon, you know, yes. and um, that's, that's my, that's my next thing. Sales of Sharon, weirdly, one of the songs that connected me and my wife, I have no idea how she knew that song. I don't want to know how she knew that song, but great Scorpions deep cut there. Yeah. And that's um, for me, it's like, it goes right back to those days. You know, I actually had not heard that album. I heard Eruption, you know, and Van Halen, you know, the first I heard that on the day it came out, so I bought it the second day that it was out. But um, I bought uh, Taken by Force album in the cutout bin, I think, for two ninety nine, and that was probably in like mid seventy eight actually already. And it was just like, oh my god, it's just like okay, Ed, Ed blew my mind. And then I'm listening to this, and it's like I, I was tempted to just give up altogether on playing guitar at that point because I'm like, <laughs> I'm never going to reach this level. Well said. Actually, that's the project that Chris and I are doing. We're we're going to uh, do the. Uh, world's greatest uli john roth cover band <laughs> you're only covering artists uh with the last name roth exactly we're we're only covering artists that we could actually outdraw by doing a tribute to the <laughs> oh, our actual no. artist and it has to be not only the last name roth but it has to be a three name roth name so <laughs> oh is there another one <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure Sammy Hagar could tell you there is. I don't know, but we're yeah, we're doing the mashup. It's gonna be the Uli Dave Roth band. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then besides your Uli John Roth uh ongoing tribute series, Brad, anything for you that you'd like to plug otherwise? Uh yeah, actually I have uh um it's probably another three or four weeks uh away uh from you know, appearing on the, uh, on the internets. Uh, I'm doing a, a limited series uh, podcast uh, interviewing different artists on their favorite Jimi Hendrix song. Wow. Okay. And seeing that the Hendrix estate is still putting out new material 51 years after he died. Uh, Some of they're... it quite good though, you know, yeah. Hawaii like actually is great. the, the, uh, the last thing that they did, um, uh, Hendrix at Maui, is really uh, a pretty awesome show. Yeah. Um, you know, not to go yeah. there too deep or anything, but it was one of the few shows like in 1970s where Jimmy actually seemed like he was having a good time and, and, and you know, he's playing his ass off on that thing. So I'm, I'm happy if the, if the family's going to keep putting out good things, then I'm, I'm, I'm there, you know? Yeah. I know there's the live France album that they're in the process of putting out as some limited edition thing. So hopefully the Van Halen family can take a note from the Hendrix family and start giving us some new stuff. That's just some 
personal opinions right there. You guys do not have to agree with that, but hopefully the archives will open up in the next few years. It needs oh, to. Oh yeah, no, I mean, we're, we're, we're keeping our fingers crossed when Chris, Chris and I went to 5150, we saw the stacks of, of recordings and the CDs and cassette tapes and stuff. Uh, you know, I, we're hoping that they hire us to go there. And <laughs> So let me write the headline for Blabbermouth. Authors <laughs> of new Eddie Van Halen book say that there's thousands of hours of unreleased material and it's coming out next year. Right. right. <laughs> uh, we'll be hearing from Wolfgang's attorney for that one. <laughs> no, but thank you both for your time and really looking forward to whatever the next project is, whether you're talking about guitar pickups or not. I'm looking forward to it. So thank you for your time. Well, we ain't going to be talking about love. <laughs> <laughs>